Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Well, a very warm welcome uh, to our book launch this evening of Black Gay, British Christian Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace. Uh, my name is David. I'm the editor at SCM Press. I'm so looking forward to hearing uh, during this hour um, from the author of the book, uh, the Reverend Gerald Robinson Brown. Uh, Gerald is uh, currently uh, the assistant curate at St. Botolf in Aldgate. He's also, uh, I think, completing an MA. Um, he should be here somewhere. Uh, we can ask him how the MA is coming on. Gerald, how's it going? <laughs> Hey David, um, it's going away. Ironically, um, the deadline is is about two or three days away, so I'm kind of trying to make sure it gets handed in. But I'll be very glad to not be spending my time mentally in the third century. <laughs> An intense time, I should think. Uh, we're also going to be hearing this evening uh, from our special guest uh, for the evening, uh, the Reverend Winnie Alvarez, who was formerly at uh, Trinity uh, Church Wall Street in New York, and she's just moved to become the rector at St Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta. Do we have uh, Winnie? There she is. Winnie, that move must have been a bit of a logistical challenge, I should think. That's, that's some distance. I don't. My US um, geography is pretty poor, but that seems like some distance. Yeah, there's nothing like moving in the middle of COVID. It's been an adventure. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so the way this evening's going to run um, is we're going to hear uh, from Gerald for about uh, twenty minutes or so. Uh, sorry, about ten minutes or so, uh, and then he'll introduce us uh, to some of the themes of the book, um, and we're going to then invite uh, Winnie Varghese into the conversation. Uh, and essentially, we just get to eavesdrop for a little bit on uh, what I'm sure is going to be a rich uh, uh, and exciting conversation between the two of them. Uh, and also just to say the book is um, currently on offer. Uh, so if you uh, order it, uh, you can do so via our website, scmpress.co.uk. Uh, or in fact, uh, via the Church House Bookshop is the other good place. Uh, you see it scrolling at the bottom there, chbookshop.co.uk, and you can save £2 on the book. Uh, so do uh, check that out as well. Uh, but without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Gerald. I just thought I would start by speaking about this book and how it came together um, and particularly about um, the bits in it that are really important to me and my thoughts. Um, what I want to do is just read from the preface basically and then talk a bit about some of the key themes for me. So this is from the preface, it's about a page and a half in, so I'll just read. As I started to write this book, the entire world began to change. The fragility of our human institutions and systems suddenly became as visible as their deadly potency. As our bodies became separated through physical distancing and human touch, restrained by lockdowns and isolation, we found ourselves facing an unseen killer. In the midst of this, the world we knew swiftly became unrecognisable, one in which we were told where to stand, how long to wash our hands for, and to cover the parts of our faces that we have retrospectively discovered communicates so much. We have experienced the very real double-edged sword of the necessity of touch and the abuse of touch evidence in rising cases of domestic violence, LGBTQ plus hate crimes, and multiple incidents of racist violence. This pandemic, or rather our response to it, has governed our intimacies, interrupted our spiritual life, and managed our funeral rites and by extension, our grief. 
In the UK, it has silenced our singing, closed our churches, and rendered visible our societal sicknesses and inequalities. At a time when Black LGBTQ plus youth have been hit the hardest. Writing this book about Black Christian LGBTQ plus lives, at a time when the vulnerability of all Black life has unavoidably shaped the tenor of my writing, has made a difficult task much more challenging. Not only has the absence of library access been a hindrance, but I have had to let go of how I imagined the entire process of writing. Between the higher rates of fatality among us throughout this pandemic, as well as the killing of Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and the very public and brutal murder of our brother George Floyd in Minneapolis, I have tried to press on with a task that has, in light of this, felt even more urgent. Not just that, but this is a world in which race is now being discussed in a way in which, when I began writing in 2019, it simply wasn't being discussed in the UK. And I should add there, particularly not in the British church. The emotional toll of bearing witness to black LGBTQ plus Christian faith and trying to hear the voice of God in the midst of a writing task that has required the study of deeply tragic stories and our traumatic history has meant that the shape of this book has been determined by this experience. I say this to say that this is not perhaps the book I expected to write but the book that these circumstances have given birth to. It is a book that speaks of the grace of God as God's special and unconditional love for all people and of how that grace is not offered as it should be to black LGBTQ plus people in the church of God. It is also a book that unapologetically centers black people as both the subject and the audience, although it seeks to challenge Christians of all backgrounds who are neither anti-racist nor LGBTQ plus affirming. For the first time in 800 years, churches in the UK have had to close their doors during this pandemic. In this period, I have heard Christians from all backgrounds, but particularly those of wealth and privilege, express their sadness and longing at the church turning its back on them, shutting the door just when we need the church most expressing in different ways a sense of betrayal. I've also heard of Christians expressing how they miss Holy Communion, really miss hymn singing, and miss the fellowship we normally have. Some have unequivocally told me that it is now more than ever that the church ought to be standing with the fearful and vulnerable. These multifarious articulations of sacramental hunger and embodied Christian community are things many privileged and heterosexual Christians are experiencing for the very first time. I cannot help but notice that black LGBTQ plus Christians have known this hunger and lived with it for years. That we who are black and LGBTQ plus live constantly in a state of emergency. We know what it is to lose our spiritual home be turned away from the church's sacraments and have the doors shut in our faces. We know what it is to lose a sense of spiritual family, to lose the safety and assurance that comes from being able to worship God in the way we once knew, to have routine and normality disrupted and to suddenly feel isolated. We know. And in our exile from our families and from our spiritual homes, 
we have in so many cases not been sought out, but been left in a wilderness where grace is in famine and where love and welcome, sacraments and singing are scarce. Those who are experiencing this for the first time because of the pandemic should count themselves blessed that their exile is due to a virus and not their identity. When I first agreed to write this, I was determined to do one thing, write a book that did something to help set black queer Christians in Britain free. If I have achieved that, if I have in one way or the other pushed back against the violent religious, particularly Christian forces that make it difficult for us to breathe in this life, in this world, in this church, then I will rest in that knowledge alone and feel as though I have achieved something of the task I sought out to achieve in the beginning. So that sets, I think, for me, a bit of the scene in terms of um, where I wanted to go in this book. Whether I achieve that or not is for you to decide. Um, but one of the major issues, I think, with grace, and I think this book, this book is about grace and how that relates to Black queer lives. One of the major issues with grace is that because we speak about it so much as Christians, we all kind of think we know what we mean when we use the word grace. And I think we all think that we mean the same thing when we speak about grace. But grace has often been spoken about in a way which has framed it as that which transforms us. To be saved by grace is to become a new creation, is to be born again, is to be made new. That's lovely to a certain extent. But the problem is that so often when we speak about that, in relation to black queer Christians, what we mean by that change, by that transformation, is that we are heterosexual, no longer queer, that we are white, no longer black or brown, and that we have to give up any radical politics if we have them. And so the first thing that I wanted to do was realize and write about the fact that I needed grace to do more for me than simply demand my transformation. Because if my transformation was about me becoming straight and becoming white, it was not a transformation that I was interested in, nor was it a transformation that was possible. And so I'm kind of challenged by some questions that James Cone, um, that amazing African-American theologian asks in his book, God of the Oppressed. And I take these questions and I apply them to black queer lives and think about grace using them. Cone asks these questions. When does the church cease to be the church of Jesus Christ? When do the church's actions deny the faith that it verbalizes? And then Cohen goes on to say, for the sake of the mission of the church in the world, we must continually ask, what actions deny the truth disclosed in Jesus Christ? Where should the line be drawn? Can the church of Jesus Christ be racist and Christian at the same time? Can the church of Christ be politically, socially, and economically identified with the structures of oppression and also be a servant of Christ? Can the Church of Jesus Christ fail to make the liberation of the poor the centre of its message and work and still remain faithful to its Lord? And so I write on page nine, we might also ask, can the Church neglect the primacy of grace in its dealings with and relations to God's LGBTQ plus children and still be the church. The thing about what the church says to us 
in our baptism and in our confirmation is that when we think of what the church says liturgically and then we listen to what the church says about LGBTQ plus people, there is this massive chasm. I'm really interested in what happens when we give a primacy to grace, when we let grace speak for itself, and when we don't connect grace constantly to the language of sin and repentance, what happens when we just think about grace as the unconditional love of God? And what I want to do in this book is to separate grace from just being a theory or a doctrine um, that is just about words um, and look at grace as the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about grace when we look at the body of Christ, when we look at where Christ places his body physically in his life on earth? What do we learn about grace when we look at the wounds that are in Christ's hand and feet and side? What do we learn about grace when we listen to what Jesus has to say to those who were marginalised, condemned, oppressed, and who faced prejudice and discrimination in his time? Father Roger Haidt, a Roman Catholic theologian, says that everything that God does for humanity in Christ is grace. And that is what I'm working out of as a framework in this book. Um, and so that's just a way in to some of my thoughts that are underpinning um, most of the pages in Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace. Thank you. Jarrell, thank you for um, inviting me to this conversation. So it's, it's a real privilege for me. And um, thank you for speaking the names of so many Union Theological Seminary professors. Um, oh. Like being back in school, so it's wonderful. Um, there's so. There's so many things I want to ask you. So I'm, I'm going to start with this. This is a quote from you, right? Let me read some of your words to you. you Grace exists to make us more our true selves. When seen in this way, grace is that which should cause a downward move in us into the truest and deepest parts of our true selves, rather than an upward move that takes us out of ourselves. It is the thing that enables us to live completely and fully in our skin with comfort and pride. So I'll throw you a softball at first. Um, how do you come to believe that in a world and in a, in a faith that would tell us that in these bodies, um, that grace is actually something that would, either that's quite philosophical or that would take us very, it's something unachievable by us or, or it comes to us because of our profound um, sinful nature. I think for me, the moment you make the move um, from seeing grace as this kind of abstract theory to seeing it as embodied in the person of Christ, you know, one of the things that, that makes Jesus attractive to me is that he is himself. Um, and there's a sense in which Jesus is never apologizing for being him. And I find that really troubling and, and quite disturbing on one level because I don't have that kind of courage. And it's something that I see also in someone like James Baldwin, this complete unapologetic inhabiting of who they are. Um, and so therefore, when I look at grace as embodied, it demands that I bring my own body into that encounter. Um, and actually the, the thing that I think Jesus calls us to, you know, come and follow me is not, is not just about like walking in my shadow. Um, come and follow me, you know, the reason that the disciples are called to leave behind life as they knew it was because that was not that was not real life. There was there was a there was a deeper reality for them, um, and they became their true selves 
as they learned what it meant to live in communion with Jesus, you know? And that's why they lay down their lives for him, because they discover a deeper reality. And I think for me, there's something there that I, I realize is true for me, that actually there is a me, but then there's the me that, that I encounter in Christ, um, which is so much truer, but is, um, is a scarier place to inhabit. Um, and, and I think that downward move is about, you know, really getting into contact with who I am at the deepest level, um, which is the person I run from, but the person that God sees, you know? Um, and so I wear a mask so often. Um, that sounds so different in this time when we do wear masks for different reasons, but I, I wear a, a mask um, to cover my, my entire face you know, to be acceptable to so many people, but that's a mask that God never sees. Um, and I think the invitation to to receive grace and to live in grace is to live in such a way that we can drop that. And that's why grace is scary. And that's why grace is so important. So the the, the process you're describing, um, when you describe reading Dr. Cohn, you know, he talks about in his first book in writing Black Theology, that he, he went away and um, went upstairs in his brother's house and wrote for months and months, like worked it out, right? That the, the um, he literally had to go sit in a room alone to work out the idea of how black power could, what it, the challenge to the church that it was, because it was so outside of what, how we learned theology, right? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was bringing together categories that, um, that weren't brought together. So I'm, I'm obsessed with this. I, 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 I'll stop beating this drum for too long. How, how'd you, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued by how we get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just thinking that that actually Dr. Cohn, the reason I am so um, in awe of him is because of that, that he, yeah. he lived that true reality, right? He entered into that. He, he I mean, he's, he's similar to some other theologians in some ways who perhaps I agree with in a, in a different way or don't agree with so much, but whose work I find challenging because they're asking questions I would never dare ask, yeah. right? Or that I would never ask publicly. And the reason I find Dr. Cohen so inspiring is because um, he goes there into a place that we now, because he's written his work, know to be true in us, but that actually at that time would have been so costly and so so daring and um, was genuinely new ground to say, this is the reality of black life. What does theology say to that and to own that? And I'm, and I'm sure his inspiration would have been Jesus, right? That, that would have been one of his his inspirations yeah. in doing that, that he felt so deeply the conviction that we find Christ in the theology that he was doing. You know, that he discovered a deeper truth about, about the nature of God in his theology. And once you discover that, you can't deny it, yeah. you know? It, this is part of the, the challenge that Cohn got as well, is the, the category of black freedom exists right as revolutionary as that was um in the 50s or you know whenever um but most of these movements for freedom um once you start to speak them definitely true in the parts of the lgbtqi plus community i know um leave faith behind because the, the categories cannot come together right or, or we we can't perceive them i don't read that as ever being a struggle for you necessarily is that is that right definitely i would say i haven't really ever experienced that sense of of needing to leave behind my faith um, to feel freer or in in kind of in the struggle for 
liberation as someone who's back in Korea. I haven't had to leave my faith behind. What I have had to do, which is what lots of people have to do, and what I think I'm doing in the book to an extent for myself, is the process of, of deconstruction to a degree, you know? And, and for me, that also looks like reclamation. Yeah. I'm reclaiming my Christian heritage, our Christian heritage. And that for me is also about me freeing myself from some of the shackles of white theology. Um, because actually a, a lot of what is my heritage has been taught to me as whiteness, um, as white theology. So I've, I've, all, I've often felt as though there have been bits of faith which have been deeply um, controlling and deeply, um, you know, haven't given me freedom. But I've never felt this kind of complete contradiction. And I think it is because at the forefront of my mind is this person of Jesus Christ who embodies for me a faith that I can, I can dig, I can buy. You know, I can buy into the faith that Jesus embodies. Um, and I've always had a separation, I think, between that and the faith that the church has taught as an institution. But not everyone has that, you know. Yeah, so I, um, I was listening to a friend, or I was trying to listen to a friend preach a sermon online recently. Um, and she's from the Black Baptist tradition in, in the US. And I had to, I, I expect, I lost my mind. I, I, for some reason, thought it was going to be like an Anglican sermon. So I had booked like 15 minutes or 20 minutes that I had free to watch this. And like 20 minutes in, she was still offering her thanks and acknowledgments of the people that had brought her there in that institution. That's a huge part of the, the Black church tradition to, to name it, right? To name all of the links and the heritage and the people within the institution. And it's, it's a liturgical proclamation of a, a, a truth of, of the legacy of slavery and colonialism, that there are these parallel lives that we're living, right? Until I moved, my grandparents were on the wall behind me. Because if I could present my life to you on, you know, in my, I would put my grandparents on the wall. Like this is, this is who I come from and this is where my heart is. And this is um, how I think theologically, frank, frankly, is framed first and foremost by, by those people and their practice of faith. Mm. Um, again, I'm intrigued by what, what causes you to bring that into theological and institutional church spaces for whom, at least for whom my family is, we don't exist. We're a part of the church that does not exist in the, in the, um, academic inquiry of the traditions that I come from. So tell me about that. Tell me about bringing it in um, and what that's been like. Yeah, it's really funny. I was I was smiling because as you said that, I literally preached a sermon online for the Festival of Preaching the other day and started it off by telling a story about um, Graham Preedy, who taught me to preach, my first preaching mentor. Um, and, you know, he was a very holy man. He was a, he was so different to us and our family. So he's a white man from a middle-class background in, in many ways. Um, and... But his heart, you know, one of the things I always remember about Graham was that um, there had been some graffiti by the NF National Fund in our area. And I, I was not around when that incident happened, but my nan told me about it. And Graham made sure that that graffiti was taken away. You know, that was part of his, he, he felt so strongly about these things. He had a very clear moral compass. And I started that sermon by talking about Graham because I never come to anything alone. You know, I'm always mindful of those who have enabled me to be here. I don't, even doing this, writing the book, um, it was so important to me to call on the names of those who make my work and my life possible. Um, and so that has happened and, and will always be how I do things, to be honest. Um, but I think the main person that I would, I would 
kind of Gullabong would be my grandmother. And and she's fundamental in the sense that my understanding of grace comes from her. My understanding of God comes from her. I think a lot of my theological commitments in terms of my sacramentalism and so many other things come from her. Um, and she was an orphan um, in Jamaica. And so she didn't know her parents at all. She was adopted by a school teacher. Um, and I think that that sense of rootlessness mm-hmm. meant that she found in God a sense of home. Um, and I had a similar experience, not in quite the same way, but I was brought up by her because my father wasn't around and my mother has severe mental health um, issues. So my nan brought my sister and I up. And I think she was recreating that sense of care that she knew. Um, and I think also I found a rootedness and a sense of home in God as well, because of that same sense of not having a place um, that was a safe, secure ground, you know. Um, and I was always taught that you, you know, we don't, we're not here on our own steam. We, we stand on the shoulders of many people, even if we can't name them, we have to be mindful of them because they're still around, yeah. you know. Yes, yes. And the um, another thing I'm struck by in your book, and um, Baldwin does this, Cohn does this, um, it, it seems to me very clear in your writing um, that it never occurs to you that God does not, wouldn't, that, that you never question that God delights in you, that God has made you on purpose, um, and that you're beloved, beautiful. I mean, it's so, and you talk about Baldwin in this way, right? for many of us, um, puts on paper what we know to be true, that there's this beautiful life here among beautiful people living, loving together. Um, so different, again, than how we are trained theologically. Um, to, to, again, tell me about, about bringing those together in, in, your, in your work. Of course. I suppose I am kind of building on my experience of love and grace that I discover and felt from my grandmother, right? And I, and I, I see that love and grace and care, um, that kind of nurturing, as also God's love and care for me. And I think you, I bring that into my theology, whereas actually um, the ways in which we're taught to do theology is that we're, we're meant to kind of leave our own experience of those things behind yeah. just go with what we're, we're taught um, but that is not how I think we do theology like the, the the people in the community that we come from do theology differently and actually that is the same way that the ancient thinkers of Christianity thought is that you bring the whole of yourself um, your whole experience of God not just in the church but in the world into your thinking and your writing um, because that is also theological yeah. You know, if God is the creator of everything, why wouldn't you see God and experience and encounter God everywhere? Um, and so I think for me, I and, and Baldwin got that, obviously, you know, um, it seemed to him completely nonsensical to divorce his reality as a black gay man living in America um, from his writing and from his spiritual experience, because you can't do that. You can't, you can't compartmentalize God, which is why having to imagine that God despises your homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever it might be, makes no sense, you know, because we experience the joy and love of God in our sexuality as well. Well, it makes no sense, except it's how we're all encouraged to think that God lives in this very small box that lives inside your church and can only take certain things about you, right? Um, Or understand certain things about you or see a very presentable version of yourself. Um, 
it's still quite, it's the revolution to say that that's not true, right? Because God is active and alive in our worlds. Um, so tell me what you think about this. It, it almost seems that sometimes the pushback we get for this kind of theologizing um, has something to do with the fact that, that white Christianity has lost the category of freedom. Yeah. It doesn't get to have it because of white supremacy and colonialism in this history. And global majority folks haven't lost the category of freedom, mm. right? Um, so this is my own speculation. I'm, you have much more training in this area than I do. Um, but because you're talking about grace for freedom, for freedom in Christ, right? Um, what, what do you think about that? And where does that take you? Well, I think I was just thinking, you know, I think one of the things about freedom is you only know it's cost when it's been taken from you, you know? And so, so freedom is worth everything because folk like us didn't always have it, you know? And actually that's, that's so important, I think. Um, one of the things I'm going back to my nan again, but she used to say to me, we're coming from afar. She often used to say that. She used to call me Jaja and she'd call me and say, you know, we're coming from afar. And as a kid, I used to think, what do you mean? You know, I was born here, I haven't come from far, what are you on about? And I used to think she meant Jamaica. Yeah. Then I used to think that she meant, I don't know, somewhere else, but but she was basically saying, there's a degree to which we don't, you know, we weren't supposed to make it here. You know, to actually remember that we were enslaved. Yeah. Remember that we've, we've come, not just from a physical place, but through something, through an experience. And I think that that for me means that freedom is is so important not just freedom but joy yeah. you know and experiencing those at any cost one of the things people sometimes say to me when um if i if i get very passionate about justice issues which is the one thing that really does get me fired up um they don't get it they're like why why you know that seems to really evoke something in you i'm like well yeah because actually um people like me have died over yeah. this stuff you know, this is not, it's not cultural stuff. This is life and death, yeah. you know? And um, I think this is where there can be a divide even between um, black and brown people in the LGBT community and white folk that actually there's this illusion often in white queer circles that everyone is free. Yeah. You know, that we, we've done the work on LGBT inclusion, that the, the only thing we need now is marriage. And I'm like, well, equal marriage would be lovely, but you know what, I just want to breathe. You know, actually lots of black and brown queer folk just want to walk down the street um, and not have the police harass them, you know. Um, and it, it is a different thing to inhabit a black body as someone who's black and queer than it is, even in the UK, as someone who's white and queer. Yeah, it was, um, it got my attention to hear you say Ahmad Arbery's name. He, you know, he died here, um, wow. jogging, right? And um, part part of the the change and COVID times for us is not that more people are dying, it's that we can be bothered. Absolutely. You know, which is, yeah. And as Christians, if we can't stay connected to that, I really don't, I don't know what we're doing, right? I don't know about you, but for me, there was a kind of sense of tragedy. A lot of people were saying, you know, isn't it wonderful that so many people are getting on board with kind of the anti-racist stuff and, you know, that people are having these conversations more. And I remember when everyone was kind of saying the Black Lives Matter stuff, who had not said anything about it before, and all I was left with was a deep sense of grief, I think, that it took that, you know, that actually many of us were um, aware and had had a deep sensitivity to these issues for the whole of our lives. And some people had the privilege only in 2020 of becoming aware of this stuff. 
that didn't fill me with joy or gladness that people were becoming aware. It filled me with grief, actually. Yeah. You know, um, and I still feel odd about that. You know, that actually the church is doing a lot now, particularly in the UK context, to talk about race that it wasn't before. And part of my sadness is that it took that. Yeah, yeah, that we're we're, we're living such different lives right next to one another, right? Um, our in, our insides. So you, um, to, to the point of coming from afar, um, your own theological work has taken you to um, to the early church and origins, um, and to the origins of of Christianity as we know it um, in North Africa. Um, so tell tell us about that. Yeah, so I was taught church history um, by Angela Tilby in Cambridge, and and she was just an amazing lecturer and someone who made the kind of early church come alive for me. Um, but the one connection I had never made back then, this was 2010 to 2013, was that there were so many great thinkers who were Africans. And so who, um, who shared something of my identity. And it's a really complicated one. I mean, you know, just to, to use the term African doesn't necessarily mean blackness. Then this is the thing, it means lots of things. Um, but one of the things that I would argue it does mean is a proximity to suffering. You know, I've, I've recently come to the conclusion, for me at least, um, that one of the things I mean when I use the term African in my scholarship is a proximity to martyrdom. You know, mm -hmm. one of the really fascinating things is one of the earliest records we have, in fact, the earliest record we have of Christianity in Africa is a record of facilitated martyrs in Carthage in 180 AD, um, which is incredible that that's the kind of beginning of um, the historical mm -hmm. of Christianity in Africa. Um, and so many of the great thinkers we think about live close to a, a suffering that is caused them by the empire. Um, and another beautiful thing about that is that there is a conscious turning away from that. They are martyrs because they refuse to play the empire's game. You know, they are struggling against imperial powers. They know what it means to follow Jesus Christ and therefore they won't do the empire's thing. Um, and one of the main thinkers for me in terms of this book was Athanasius of Alexandria. Um, who is a fourth century church father, he's called the father um, of orthodoxy. And he writes an amazing work, a two-part work, but we know it as on the incarnation. And that is um, all about the image of God um, being, being seen in human beings. And um, one of the things that he says is that God created the universe, leaving nothing, nothing barren of his image. Um, and so I take that and I think, well, that has to include the LGBTQ plus community. If God creates the world and nothing is barren of his image, how can it not include black queer folk? Um, so drawing on that resource was so important for me because it's our heritage, you know, and we who are black and queer who were told that um, we have no place within this, this thing called the body of Christ. Um, if we look throughout the historical record, there are black queer Christians, uh, you know, I promise folk, they exist. We're not the first, we won't be the last. And so actually this is our home because we've always been here. And often it's saying that, which is so important um, when we face homophobia that says you can't be Christian and queer, you can't be black and queer. This is our church because God made it our church. Well, one of the um, challenges I, in, in your book is for the church to be a vehicle of grace to the world. What I, I have to say, I, having read other things, 
I realized that I, I think of grace as something that comes from God and kind of gets to you despite the church, which is how I've worked around the fact that the church so often doesn't work. But of, of course, it would be our problem, right? Of course, um, how who we distribute the sacrament to and who we offer it to and all that. Tell, tell us something about holding the church accountable um, in its responsibility in that way and its faithfulness. I think it's vital. I think I think we have to we have to hold the church accountable because God holds it accountable. You know, one of the things I really get tired of is that as queer Christians, we are made to examine and scrutinize our lives to such a degree, and the church doesn't think it has to do the same thing about its institutional life. And I'm like, no, actually, the gospel has something to say about all of our lives as individuals and as a collective. And so for me, I have no time for a church that says that queer people have to really take their sin seriously, more seriously than anyone else, you know? But the church can treat people any which way it likes, it somehow seems to think that God doesn't see that. And I have a massive problem with that because I'm like, I, you know, we have to listen to the message that we proclaim and we have to hear it for our institutional lives as much as for the lives of those who are outside of the church. And my problem is often the gospel is kind of put out there and we don't look at the gospel and think, well, how much are we living it? How much does the church actually live what it proclaims? And so for me, when I talk about the abolition of the church, you know, I'm not talking about churches being smashed to pieces and, and torn away. Um, but I am saying that, you know, if, if we can't make this thing better, then some of it does have to go. And some of it we just have to let go of. And that's to do with hierarchies, to do with power, it's to do with privilege that I think cannot be reformed and cannot be redeemed because it was never meant to be there in the first place. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.